through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still not, did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, this was the first Sunday that I have ever been thankful for our cell phone technology that automatically updates in the middle of the night. Was anybody shocked by daylight savings today? I had no idea. I woke up and I'm like, why am I so tired? And then I walked out and saw my oven clocks were wrong and all this stuff. It was very disorienting. But I'm glad you made it. Good job. I'm glad. I hope I can keep you awake for the next 30 minutes or so, uh, but I know how you're feeling. I'm tired too. Um, but I'm grateful to be able to preach. I took last week off. I got to go uh, to New York for a few days, and it was really cool. I found out that one of my friends has become the, the rector of one of those giant cathedrals in Times Square. Uh, I, and so I went to visit, and I went to church. You know, sometimes you go on vacation and you never go to church. I went to church like 15 times last week. So got to go to afternoon prayer and evening prayer and did the Stations of the Cross, and it was very cool. And you can pray for him, his ministry, being a, a, a Bible-believing Christian, pastoring one of those big old empty churches. Um, he has his work cut out for him. Um, but I'm grateful to be with you. I feel very refreshed, and um, I'm excited to preach this passage this morning. Um, do any of you guys know about Fabergé eggs? So a few weeks ago, I fell into this YouTube rabbit hole, <laughs> learning about the, the Fabergé eggs. They were these uh, ornate kind of pieces of jewelry that were made for the Russian czars. And they're, they're special because there are only uh, 52 of them that were ever made. And each one of them is their gold and diamonds and these precious jewels. Um, but what makes them especially interesting is that seven of them are missing. And up until recently, eight of them were missing. That is, until 2014, there was a man who was a, uh, he was searching for scrap metals at a flea market in the Midwest, in the United States, and he ran across this egg, and he bought it. And it was a little bit expensive, but not too bad. And his plan was he was going to melt this thing down and get the gold out of it and try to make like 500 bucks or something. But then, out of curiosity, he decided to do a quick Google search 
to see if he could find any more information about this egg that he found. And it's a good thing he did. Because what he discovered was that that little egg, that hunk of metal that he planned to melt down, was worth about $30 million. <laughs> when I first heard that story, I was like, man, I was, I was imagining how incredible that moment must have been for this scrap metal guy to discover exactly what he had found. But then also I thought about what a terrible moment it must have been for that guy at the flea market who had sold it to him for next to nothing to realize what fortune they had just lost if they had only taken a moment to investigate. Well, as we are nearing the end of the Gospel of John this morning, we are finally coming to the beginning of the account of the resurrection. And as we study this text, we are faced with the potential for riches that are far greater than what that guy found in the flea market. What we have here is not, nothing less than a, a promise of immeasurable worth, of un, uh, inconceivable value. Because if the resurrection really took place, if this actually happened in history, then it means that, that, that what is promised to us is nothing short of life forever, free from the pain of death. It's the promise of a world that is going to be restored and renewed and made whole again. It's the promise of the end of all suffering and dwelling in the presence of God in perfect happiness forever. And if that's what's at stake, that means at the very least, we need to take some time to investigate the claims. It deserves our attention because the difference between investigating and, and not investigating could mean we would miss out on the greatest treasure ever known. So that's what I want us to do this morning as we, we investigate this passage. I want us to consider three facts. And those three facts are this. I want us to consider that the tomb was empty. The impact is undeniable. And the meaning is beyond our wildest dreams. The tomb was empty, the impact is undeniable, and the meaning is beyond our wildest dreams. So let's talk about that empty tomb first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels. Each one of them tells the story of, oh look, I had a picture of that egg. You know, I made these slides a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to be discovering them along with you. Um, so the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. So Matt, all, the, all the Gospels, they give the same account. And, but it's astonishing as you read them and compare them that there are little slight differences and variations between each one of the stories. They each tell the same story, but they kind of tell them in a different way. So in the passage we just read, John tells us that it was early on the first day, while it was still dark, that they were headed to the tomb. But Mark, it says... It was very early, just after sunrise. And Matthew says it was at dawn, and Luke says it was very early in the morning. And if you look at each one of these accounts and you read through them, you'll see that there are lots of little things like that. The story is the same, but the testimony they give has little 
variations among them. And people will tell you that that's actually one of the strengths of these resurrection accounts. That that level of variety is evidence of the truthfulness behind them. Those are the exact kinds of differences that you would expect eyewitnesses to give you. Little differences. But ultimately telling the same story. It means there wasn't a moment when all of these authors got together and they say, okay, we need to get our stories straight. We got to all get on the same page so we can say this is what happened. No, these authors told us just as they remembered it or just as it was told to them by the people they were recording it from. And, and what is it that we read here? John tells us that it was Sunday morning, it was around sunrise, and Mary Magdalene was headed to the tomb. If you read the other Gospels, we learn that there were some other women who were there with her, and she was carrying spices. The reason why they had spices, it was very practical. It was not just some kind of ritual, but this was a long time ago. And so when you're going to deal with a body that has been laying in a tomb for several days, it, is, it smells bad. And so these spices were meant to cover up the odor of decay. And we, we just read that once Mary got there, she saw that the tomb, the, the stone in front of the tomb had been rolled away. And she's confused and, and she's upset. And so she runs back to the disciples and she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And so then John and, and Peter, the two disciples who were there, they go running to the tomb to figure out what happened. And the first thing I want you to notice about these events, there is no expectation that Jesus has risen from the dead. No one is expecting a resurrection at this point. They were not waiting for Jesus to come back alive. They were carrying spices to deal with a dead body. And when the body was gone, the resurrection didn't even cross their mind. What crossed their mind was someone has taken the body, and we don't know where they've put him. Grave robbery was actually a very common crime back then. We still have records of the harsh penalties under Roman law because people were often buried with valuables and things like that. And so grave robbery was a, an issue that people had to deal with. And so that's what they assumed had happened. And it's probably what the disciples thought had happened as well. But you see that when they get to the tomb and they started checking things out, they realized that the situation was a little bit strange. That the linens that had been wrapped around Jesus' body, they were still there. Now, grave robbing is not an artisanal craft, okay? I just went to New York last week. It's amazing the kinds of jobs people have come up with. These little basic things in life that they will charge a lot of money for. And call it some artisanal work. There was a guy in Brooklyn a few years ago who, in parody of all these people, called himself an artisanal pencil sharpener. So you could bring him your pencils and he would put them in his fine, you know, crafter table and he would sand them down with sandpaper and, you know, charge you $10 to sharpen your pencil. 
taking his time, enjoying the work. Grave robbery is not an artisanal work. It is a crime. It is something that you come in and you come out. You do it as quickly as possible. You're not going to run, sit in there for hours and, and gently unwrap the body and fold up the linens and lay them and then carry the body out with you, leisurely wandering away. No, you got to go as fast as you can. And you have to imagine, I've never been a grave robber. I don't know if any of you have. But it would probably be much easier to carry a body that's all wrapped up and bound than to unwrap the body. It would probably be more pleasant to carry one that was covered in spices and oils. And not to mention, those things, the spices and the wrappings, they were actually worth money as well. But it wasn't just peculiar that the linens were there. We read in our passage, they were arranged in a particular way, a peculiar way. Uh, They had been placed aside, and it it made the disciples question exactly what had happened. Uh, Some people have suggested the way the verse is written, that it means they were folded up. Others think it means that they were lying in a a way that Jesus' body had just passed through the linens. We don't know exactly what, what it means, but whatever it was, we know that Peter's confused. He doesn't know what to make of it at all. And John, it says, he saw and believed. Now, what did he believe exactly I'm not sure, because there's still lots to learn. He still hasn't seen the resurrected Christ. There's still many things to come, even in this story. But he believed something. And then the passage ends by saying, and then they went back to where they were staying. That stands out to me in this passage. The complete lack of action at this point. That that strikes me, that, that uh, that Peter and John... They just act like normal people in this. They're not, they're not characters in a work of fiction trying to advance the plot. They just go back to where they were. They don't anticipate that they're going to see Jesus at any point. They don't head to some special meeting place that they had worked out beforehand. They don't give some kind of grand and ornate speech that ties everything together and explains what's happened. No, Jesus' body's not there. So once they've looked around... They leave, because you can only stare at an empty hole for so long. But in terms of our own investigation, what I don't want you to miss about this part of the story is that there is 100% historical corroboration about the events up to this point. No one in all of history will disagree with what's happened right here. Everyone agrees that whatever took place, every single historian will tell you that whatever took place, the tomb was certainly empty. Now, of course, people have come up with different ideas, different hypotheses, different explanations about what could have possibly happened. But no one has said, actually, they just made all that up. Jesus is still in the tomb. You can go check it out. In fact, that would have been very helpful to the people who were opposing the early Christians and the early Christian message. There would have been no easier way to kill the early church, right? It would have certainly been much easier than tracking down every leader and arresting them and then eventually uh, killing them. 
just bring out the body of Jesus. That would have stopped the resurrection rumors pretty fast. But, you know, they didn't do that. They couldn't do that because he wasn't there. So that's the first thing we have to recognize. The very first thing we have to see here is the tomb was absolutely and irrefutably empty. And the impact of that is undeniable. This is the second thing I want to talk about. The impact of all of this is undeniable. Now, to the skeptics here in the room, I want to, uh, I agree with you. It is difficult to believe in the resurrection. People don't come back from the dead. I know that. But people didn't come back from the dead back then either. And if we're going to really investigate this, if we're going to really consider whether or not this took place, one of the things we need to look at, that one of the things we need to account for first is the change it brought about in the lives of the disciples. We need to consider how much it changed these disciples' lives. Because did you know there were other people who claimed to be the Messiah before Jesus? Did you know that? There were other ancient people who came along and they said, actually, I am the Messiah. I am the long foretold king uh, that Israel has been waiting for, and I am coming, and I'm going to lead the Jewish people into redemption and freedom from the Roman government. Now, do you know that those people, they, some of them gained a pretty large following during their lifetime, but do you know what happened to every single one of them? Do you know how their movements ended? The Roman government killed them. And that proved pretty quickly those guys weren't the Messiah. Those guys weren't going to bring freedom to the people of Israel. And so as soon as the leaders died, their followers dispersed. On this morning, the disciples of Jesus were not waiting in anxious anticipation. They weren't excited to wake up and go down to the tomb and see that, that, that Jesus was, was back and ready to lead again. No, they were in despair. They believed that their movement had gone the way of every other movement before it. They were thinking, how could we have been so stupid? How could we have been so foolish? How could we have been so wrong? How could Jesus have said all these amazing things, done all these incredible miracles? How could he have done all this and then just died? But the resurrection, it changed everything. Verse 9, it tells us that it changed their entire understanding of what the scriptures taught, right? John says at this point, they still didn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise again. But they started to understand it once they saw Jesus. They began to realize the full impact of what it meant to be the Messiah. It wasn't, the Messiah was not just some liberating political leader. It was not just about rescuing one nation of Israel, but it was that he was coming to accomplish the redemption of the whole world. He was coming to redeem and renew everything. And this moment, it changed the trajectory of their lives. 
It changed their lives forever. And another thing you can't argue with is that once these men saw the resurrected Jesus, they went and changed the whole world. Now, you could try to explain that with conspiracy theories. Matthew tells us in his gospel that some of the chief priests had even bribed the soldiers, paid them off, and told them that you need to lie and say that they stole Jesus' body in the night. But even that didn't hold up at the time because everybody knew that if you were a soldier on watch and the guy's body gets stolen, well, you get killed. That's the penalty. And, and think about this. Even if the disciples were just twisted and sick people, and they just they wanted to lie to the whole world about Jesus coming back from the dead. They wanted to trick everybody. How far do you take that lie? What exactly do you get out of that? You know, this is a long time ago. There's no money in this. There's no power, there's no glory that's going to come about from this. This is not, you know, this is long before the days of Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar, right? You're not going to be able to use the name of Jesus to get rich. You're not going to get famous. You're not going to really be able to take advantage of people. No, what happened to them? Well, they were repeatedly jailed. They were beaten. And eventually they were all killed. Now, we've seen some pretty big swindlers throughout history. We've seen some people who have been pretty committed to telling lies. But we have never seen an entire group of people who, without exception, were willing to carry a lie up to the point of their own death. How can you explain that? How can you explain the impact this moment had on the disciples' lives? That's the first thing to note. The second thing you need to note is that not only did the disciples claim that Jesus came back from the dead, but they also made another claim about him. They claimed that he was God. They started to worship him. People began to worship Jesus immediately following this moment. Now, a few years ago, there was an atheist scholar, and he wrote a book. And the hypothesis of the book was that all of this stuff about the divinity of Jesus, all of this stuff about worshiping Jesus, well, that all came about later. His, his theory was that the initial Christ-following community was just a community that exalted Jesus and his teaching and then as time went on, they eventually started to add on these ideas of deity and worship. But what's interesting about this book is that even though this guy is an atheist, he found out that his theory was wrong. And that very early, in fact, immediately, people were worshiping Jesus as God. He realized that whatever happened, whatever explanation there was, there's no way to deny that even the very earliest Christians counted Jesus not just as a guy who came back from the dead, but they said he was on equal footing with God himself. So not only were people willing to die over the claim of a resurrection, but whatever took place, these guys, they began asserting these monotheistic, 
Jewish people said Jesus is on equal footing with Yahweh himself. So it's undeniable that the tomb was empty. It's undeniable that the disciples died proclaiming the resurrection. It's undeniable that the church immediately worshipped Jesus as God. But, you know, beyond all of those kind of historic things, there are also some undeniable things that our own eyes can see. For instance, we can all see at this moment that a church was born out of this event that has now spanned the globe and encompassed billions of people. We can all see that every single day there are more people whose lives are being radically transformed by Jesus, who claim to know him as their personal savior. They claim that he is involved in their lives and working in their lives. Not only that, our eyes, we can see that history itself has been forever split in half by this moment, right? We count our time today still by what happened before Jesus and what happened after Jesus. And so, yeah, I, I agree with all the skeptics. It is very hard to believe that a person rose from the dead. I've never seen it. I'm assuming you've never seen it. But if someone had risen, what more would you expect? Isn't this exactly the kind of impact that kind of event would have to make? One that immediately changed the lives of every person around him. One that proved that he was not just a man, but worthy of worship. One that has reverberated through all of human history, even up until this very moment when we're standing here. The impact, it's undeniable. And the third thing I want to point out here is that the meaning of all this is beyond our wildest dreams. The reason why pastors like me get into these rational arguments, these apologetics arguments, the reason why we, we try to prove to you the validity of these stories is, is because we realize that if this is true, it changes everything. If the resurrection really took place, it changes everything. Just like that man who I told you about who found the Fabergé egg. He did a Google search. He found a, an old article about these missing treasures. And what did he do next? Did he sit there and think, hmm, something to think about, I guess. No, no, he contacted somebody. He called this expert jeweler from London who flew out to the Midwest to his home to examine the egg that he had. And it says that when the jeweler came and when he verified the items and when he realized that it was, in fact, worth millions of dollars, the news stories say that this man fell to his knees. Why? Well, because he realized that the rest of his life was going to be marked by that moment. The rest of his life was going to be split in half between the time before 
he had found this item and the time after. Well, brothers and sisters, what lies in front of you on these pages is a treasure that is worth a whole lot more. But the Lord has to open your eyes to see it. He has to verify it in your heart. But when he does, it changes everything. If Christ is truly raised from the dead, then it means when he said on the cross, it is finished, he was telling the truth. It means that on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. He fulfilled all of our outstanding payments. He completed all of the work that is necessary for you to earn God's favor. That's done once and for all. If Christ is raised, then it means anyone who entrusts their life to him will also be raised. If Christ is raised then it means the power of God is still at work in the world right now. The power of God is still at work in his people in this room right now. You know what Ephesians says, right? It says that uh, he prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for all of us who believe. And he says that power is the same mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That resurrection power is still at work in your life. If Christ was raised, it means that just like God brought Jesus back from the dead, he is redeeming each and every one of us. And not only us. If Christ is raised, then it's just a glimpse of what's coming. It's just a glimpse into the next thing, the redemption of everything. That's what we read about in that catechism, right? Everything is going to be renewed. And so this morning, if you're here and, and you don't know Jesus, I hope that you'll consider the facts. I hope that you'll realize the meaning of the resurrection. I hope that it will be verified in your heart. I hope that you will see its infinite worth and just like that man that you'll fall to your knees. And if you do know him, if you're here in this room and you would count yourself as one of Christ's followers, then I want to challenge you. I want to challenge all of us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers. Because if Christ was raised, then it means that you and I are members of the kingdom of God and we are recipients of his power. It means that we now get to go out and bring this resurrection life into the world with us. It means that when Christ gives us new life, when he restores us from our sin, we don't just contemplate it. We don't just ponder it. But we go out. And we bring that same life with us wherever we go. We are supposed to go and proclaim liberty to the captives. We're supposed to go and provide for the needs of the poor. We're supposed to go and comfort those who mourn to bring justice, kingdom justice, into a world full of injustice. 
We don't just talk about it. We don't just think about it. We don't just ponder it. But we live a resurrection life. Daily, together in this amazing family God's built for us called the church. We are called to be a constant witness to the power of God. If the tomb is empty, if the king is risen, then we are forever changed. So my invitation this morning as we close is for you to look at that tomb. To pick up those linens in your hand, to consider what it all means. And then to claim the treasure that's offered to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this marvelous event that you allowed your son to pay the penalty for our sins. That he finished it on the cross and now gives us his power to go live resurrected lives in the world. Lord, I know that your power is present here. And I pray that it wouldn't stop here. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work amongst us and in this community, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.